Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It features new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. In this Open House special episode, we'll be talking about the architecture of London's bridges. Specifically, we'll be focusing on Illuminated River, a visionary project to create a kinetic artwork synchronised across all 14 of central London's crossings. It's designed by US artist Leo Villarreal with London architects Lifshitz, Davis and Sanderland. And you can see the first phase in place on London, Cannon Street, Southwark and Millennium Bridges any evening. With the second phase stretching up to Lambeth Bridge now underway for a spring 2021 completion, it's an ideal moment to reflect on the bridges themselves and the role light sculpture can play in enhancing our experience of their extraordinary architecture. I'm your podcast co-host, architectural journalist Merlin Fulcher, and we're joined by my co-host Lara Kinnear, Sarah Gaventa, director of the Illuminated River Foundation, and Benedict O'Looney, Peckham-based architect and guide of the very popular Open City Architecture on the Thames Boat Tour. So London is full of landmarks and icons, so many of them, possibly more so than anywhere else in the world, at least in my view anyway. But the bridges, they really stand out for their unique and often audacious qualities. They're vital pieces of infrastructure that knit the two halves of the city and its daily travelling citizens together. But they're also fantastic structures with almost dreamlike qualities. You can't miss the beauty and rich heritage of the bridges across the city be it the structures themselves or the space around them or the vistas that they provide of the city. The story of their evolution is fascinating and as we embrace more staycations and learn to love and re-love every bit of our city in the age of Covid-19, London bridges are something worth celebrating more and more. I think it's a really interesting topic, bridges, that you can imagine almost like a founding myth of London is the fact that it was built by the Romans at the point where London Bridge is, because it was a point where you could cross the River Thames. So it's clear that like bridges are quite important to the identity of this place. 
um, actually, I, you know, what? I love one of those one of the most weird functional bridges in London is that Cannon Street Railway Bridge. It looks like it looks like it was designed to never be seen by human eyes, but I kind of like it because it's so weird and scary. You know, that's the second oldest bridge on the central stretch of the river, 1868. You know, you really think about that. That that's 1868. They were Doric cast iron Doric columns. It was elegance personified. We talk about the same bridge. I'm talking about the same bridge. And what happened was it's been strengthened over the years and uh, strengthened um, by British Rail in the 80s, which means they encase the top of those beautiful uh, Doric columns in concrete just to make them stronger. Um, You know, Hitler didn't help either because the Luftwaffe bombed the hell out of Cannon Bridge Station and that used to have a wonderful, beautiful glass canopy. I mean, you've still got the amazing twin towers on each side of the station, which... I love those. They're so beautiful. They're they're water tanks to house the hydraulic lifts. So Cannon Street has always been a workhorse. I mean, it was a very elegant workhorse in the mid-19th, late-19th century, and now it's just been sort of added to in the way that, you know... um, you know, running repairs never n- never help in a way in terms of aesthetics. And so I think it has always been dark because it's a piece of infrastructure for, for network rail. You know, it, it carries millions of passengers across it every year. And what Leo has done is, is made people stop and look at it as, uh, as actually, you know, look at those rivets and look at those columns and uh, look, at, look at this amazing achievement. I think the Cannon Street Bridge is a really interesting example because you're quite right... Sarah, in pointing out that these bridges have a setting. They're not just on their own spanning the river. There's an architectural kind of thing that meets either side, and it was surely spectacular. The original Cannon Street station by the mighty Sir John Hawkshaw in the mid-1860s, with its, as Sarah points out, big, muscular, Doric columns. However, um, reading around the subject in connection with our project at the Findlater's Corner at London Bridge, um, it was not well received in the press. I think the railway station was a fine thing, but those big iron bridges, the Cannon Street Bridge and the mighty Hungerford Bridge, were greeted with horror by the architecture press, particularly and things the popular press like the illustrated london news and what year and was this benny just so we have an 1860s. idea 1860s so the 1860s mm. these massive epic engineering cast iron things but they were that was that was controversial even though they had all this sort of beautiful detailing to them yes and no they were pretty brutish um lattice bridges and in the case of the hungerford bridge also by hawkshaw um for the southeastern railways they pushed in in an energetic way from london bridge into the west end it um, had a beautiful suspension bridge by Brunel on that site, which was rather meanly and crudely cut down and replaced with what is probably the ugliest bridge over the Thames. Although I must say that Lifshitz Davidson's footways on either side really bring it to life as a triple layer um, archaeological thing with this Brunel bridge still there, the mighty piers on the north and south banks. So you're really there. saying, Benny, you're telling us that Hungerford Bridge used to be a suspension bridge. I oh, mean, that's yeah. that's revelatory. I didn't know that. What happened? Why, why yeah, did they no, get rid of it? It's an incredible story. And it's so much fun to tell that story on our open city boat tours. And you can see the bases of these two elegant Italianate brick towers designed by Brunel and the architects around him, like Matthew Digby Wyatt. And it had a big suspension cable and it issued from this amazing 
triple-decker market building called the Hungerford Market. Imagine the Covent Garden Market on like three or four levels as it kind of works the sectional difference between the Strand and the river and these levels. Issuing from the center line of this amazing market was this suspension bridge that was to lead to a big market and fish place on the far side of the Thames. And so um, short-lived, it was finished probably in about 1830, and it was finished by 1860, early 1860s, but the chains were reused in the Clifton Suspension Bridge, which <laughs> was Brunel's great posthumous last work. These were really serious kind of builders working on the edge of engineering in their time. I mean, they they it wasn't nearly as com obviously computer analyzed there. They were doing quite empirical designs. And, and of course, the Clifton Bridge still stands and the Hungerford Bridge is still there. I promise you, each of the bridges basically has this story because um, as Sarah and we've all been learning so well, they were mostly earlier bridges on each of those sites. And so they have a whole kind of backstory to them too. And if you want to know more about those stories, you can find out all about them on the Illuminated River website where we have lots of information on the histories of the of the bridges and our... Our Twitter and social media posts regularly lots of beautiful historical images of the previous bridges. Well, I'm clearly talking to three gurus on London bridges here. Um, but I, I just wanted to ask Sarah a little bit more about um, has this been a passion of hers for a long time or has this been something that has really grown through Illuminated River Project? We've already heard so many fascinating aspects of the history of the bridges but have there been any that you've um, come across through the project that have really, I guess, surprised you? OK, well, I suppose the first part to that question is I wasn't a bridge expert before I started Illuminating, Illuminated River. Um, but I tell you, if you've got a pub quiz now, I'm your girl. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I come from, you know, I used to be the government's advisor on public space at Cape. And before I took the job at Illuminated River, I'd, I'd curated an exhibition for Historic England called Out There on post-war public art. So the idea of a project which brought together public realm and public art in an inclusive, you know, free for everybody um, way, it's going to be seen, well, phase one is seen by 60 million people a year. And for me, anything where you can bring art and public realm together, um, uh, I was like, yeah, count me in. And then, um, of course, it became a much more complicated project than we ever thought it would be. Like Sarah, you were talking about the bridges and you were talking about it coming at it from that kind of art art appreciation background. And I, I just thought that we don't really have an architecture museum in London and we don't have like a whole load of models on display. And there is a room in the V&A, but you wouldn't find a model of one of the bridges in there. And you wouldn't think in that there's so much effort put into interpreting and appreciating art. But the London bridges are a massively overlooked bit of our art history in a way and obviously our design history and our kind of cultural history of London does something like illuminated river is that almost like you know putting it on a pedestal or, or putting a light on that painting that had otherwise been in a shady corner of the gallery not being seen properly well yeah I mean I think one of the ways that Leo Villarreal the artist has approached it is um, he's using light and light sculpture is the way that he describes his work to reveal the architectural beauty of each bridge, and they're all different. So you have these bridges with these amazing lattice works. So if you look at Southwark, the way that Leo has used colour on it in these delicate washes, you can see every single rivet um, and every single beam. 
Um, and so you, you, you appreciate the engineering and the design that went into it in, in a different way. And London Bridge, which I would say is, you know, it's got a solid side, so it's a canvas bridge. He's basically used it as that, as a canvas uh, in order to paint. But it accentuates the arches. And then the way that light is reflected means you get much more of a sense of also the high and low tide. So it reconnects the bridges with the river at night, but it also reveals them as this really, uh, as, as, you know, stunning pieces of architecture. And I think that's been a really important um, part of the project. I mean, artists have always been drawn to the river. When you think of Whistler and you think of Monet, um, they've always painted the bridges. Um, but Leo, but they paint them on canvas and Leo has been using the bridges as his canvas. I think with bringing in painters is really interesting because we are massively drawn to the river and have been some of the most important all of the most important early pictures of London show the river in the foreground. Think of Canaletto or, more importantly, Holler and Vischer, the people who were depicting London in the 16th and 17th centuries. We're really talking about 19th and 20th century art and design here. And one of the things that seems to come up in my research about the bridges is this kind of competition with Paris, who were seen to have artistic bridges, often quite elaborately decorated with Beaux-Arts sculpture. There are also some very quirky modern bridges on the, on the Seine. But um, I think it's something to do with the difference between the French aesthetic and the British aesthetic, that ours are somewhat more how do I say, more engineering-led or had been? Benny, yes, as, as someone who clearly adores bridges and their history, um, but also someone who's, you know, adding new buildings to the city, you're, you're an active architect. Um, how has the Eliminated River, um, you know, created a new uh, tapestry for the city? You know, do you see it as a powerful intervention in the cityscape? Um, yeah, I think I love the project. I spend a lot of time down the river. I'm a keen sketcher. Yes, the the motifs, the the whole feel of the the city, the sky, the bridges, these things, are powerful together. And so um, it was really great fun to kind of bring that passion together with the Illuminated River Foundation in the little film that we've recently made about sketching the Southwark Bridge. We've done a cheerful little. Um, 10-minute tutorial about how you might put a townscape sketch together and used it also as an opportunity to celebrate the remarkable architecture of the Southwark Bridge, its architect, Ernest George, who was born very close to the side of the bridge and built some amazing buildings in London. And so it was really great fun. You can make a mess, be the reflections in the river, the city constantly changing. It's just fun that we all find a different language for putting stuff down on paper. We thought now that, well, with the previous six months of being constrained in the things that we can do during the pandemic, we thought it'd be fun to make a little film that just says, hey, go outside on your own, go and make a sketch. That's very kind of positive and um, low-tech thing to do. Illuminated River have commissioned a lot of things. Ben, Benny's... Benny's um... Uh, sketching included. So we're walking tours, uh, ways to engage people, working with community groups to run art classes as well. I mean, we've been hoping um, to do some yoga and Tai Chi down by by the river. So I think it's it's not just about, for us, about seeing the artwork. It's about looking. Mm, it's a tremendous gift 
to the people of London what the Illuminated River have achieved so far and will continue to achieve. Because as Sarah wonderfully says, it's a very public thing. It's the focal point of the city and increasingly so as now since the the end of the river as a kind of working docks. We're returning to the river in a very powerful way these last 20 or 30 years, and this is just such an amazing contribution to it. There's also some of other wonderful illuminated buildings that one encounters along the river, and it's just great as for much of the year it can be dark up here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, it's great to celebrate this amazing high-powered architecture that we have Benny, as an architect, would you say that the ability to sketch something, you know, because obviously you design buildings by hand as well, which is quite an amazing thing in the age of computers. You know, I can see in the background, you've got lovely drawings there behind you. And we were talking so much about how Illuminated River helps us to celebrate and appreciate architecture. Would you say that the ability to draw it, to draw any new building and the fact that you can draw Illuminated River is like a real hallmark of success? Sure. Speaking as an architect, I can't promise success, but I can promise inspiration. And that's what one hunkers for and finds in these bridges. They're one of the my favorite bridges is the Vauxhall Bridge that spectacularly combines powerful figurative sculpture and a mighty steel bit of engineering. And I have this vision like my arts and crafts heroes that sculpture and architecture belong together, that we all kind of like Leo's project, which is a painterly, extremely painterly project, that these things all fuse in what we do. This is what the good Lord put us on the planet to do, if you're an architect, is to pull together sculpture and painting and textures and make it sing. And so in that way, massively feeds into what are my spirit as a designer, like lifting those Islamic arches from the Battersea Bridge and trying to feed that into our Croydon Moss project. It's, um, it all ties together. One of the things that's um, really exciting to me about the Vauxhall Bridge is I like its line, its low kind of curve. I love the way the steel structures kind of energetically displayed. But I also love the way that heavyweights on the Edwardian sculpture scene contributed big heroic sized figures to the beers, which are extremely beautifully modeled and show bring fine art in a really powerful way into the foreground. And I think they're important protagonists in this wonderful flourishing of art we call the new sculpture movement in the late 19th and early 20th century. You see it in war memorials. You see it spectacularly in Alfred Gilbert's Shaftesbury Memorial, Eros in Piccadilly Circus, which is, you know, the high point of Art Nouveau art and sculpture in the capital. And it's brought to these bridges, which were built in this interesting time in the early 20th century, the Vauxhall, Lambeth and Southwark bridges, where iron new structural systems like iron were and steel i should say were powerfully used but and architects were looking for ways to bring art and architecture and civil engineering together well there you go so london's bridges are the encapsulation of art architecture and engineering all coming together and how can that be overlooked but we've learned it thanks to illuminated river and the attention that it's bringing to us uh, to see these things laura yeah well i can't help but think of uh, the London curriculum that every uh, primary school kid gets taught in the city and how what a shame that it doesn't have more information on this amazing part of the city's history. You know, they only look at Tower Bridge um, 
as a tiny little snippet. Yeah, and they also should be given the opportunity to visit them. You know, it's there. Uh, that, I think, is extraordinary. Nearly 70% of parents have never taken their uh, children um, on the Thames, partly because it's really expensive. So I think that as part of the curriculum, they should also... Schools should take children down to see the river. In many ways, we should think of London's bridges not just as functional and beautiful objects, but also as great places in their own right, as, as you've been sharing with us so far. They are, after all, key bits of our pedestrian and cycle infrastructure, which will play a crucial role, or should at least play a crucial role, in building the sustainable, welcoming and healthy city we all really want. It's interesting to think about how we actually experience bridges and what we use them for. In the past, the old London Bridge was filled with houses, bars and even a chapel. To be honest, that sounds like a really fun place to hang out. Um, but today, most people simply pass over the bridges. And to be frank, there's pretty limited, safe, sort of comfortable opportunities to even gaze at the bridge or gaze at the river or reflect on this spectacle. We kind of just get sucked up and along and in the flurry of the city. So, Benny, Sarah, um, since the COVID-19 crisis and lockdown, we're thinking much more about active travel and how walking and cycling can help us bounce back from uh, what we've experienced so far in city life to something that's a little bit more healthier and cleaner and happier. Could bridges and the way we use and appreciate them play a crucial role in this transformation? Well, bridges have always been important in terms of um, providing a, an environment to to move around the city, I mean, not just in terms of traffic. I mean, the whole reason why we walk on the... we drive on the left is because of London Bridge in the 18th century when it was so... there was so much traffic on it um, and it was chaotic that the keep-left rule was invented, which we now have everywhere. But, you know, London Bridge was built in the 70s with a wider footpath on the eastern side because uh, to allow the commuters back and forth across the bridge. And even with a wonderful idea, which was never... Um, utilised because it was so expensive, of putting electric um, sort of underfloor heating under the pavement so it didn't ice over, so that you also didn't slip over. Um, so, you know, the idea that we don't use bridges is is um, to walk across and cycle across. But, you know, Waterloo Bridge, you know, massive bridge, really narrow pavement. So, you know, you, we do hope that those... Um, the, the priority of, of uh, pedestrian and, and cyclists first over cars is something that is thought about in all kind of refurbishments of bridges. And, and yeah, and how about, I mean, I've been saying to TfL and other bridge owners, could we not have some seats? Could we not allow people to pause? That's an interesting one about Waterloo Bridge because it probably has one of the most stunning views in London, but you, certainly... You're when, quite right. It's, yeah, on, it's, on yeah. the, it's on the curve of the river. Um, and... You know, if you're walking along the pavement, there are road signs plonked in the middle of the pavement that you have to sort of sort of squeeze past. I mean, it's just, it's like an obstacle course. But there is no excuse for not redesigning every time that we refurbish and, and add a cycle lane is to think about it. I mean, one of the things that the, what they wonderfully called hostile vehicle mitigation systems that we've had put in since the terrible... Uh, terrorist attacks on the bridges, and I think that is that those those mitigation systems, also known as a large piece of concrete with a sort of metal poles at the top, people are sitting on them. You know, they're using that opportunity because 
it is this incredible space. And as, uh, you know, and as Lara is, is alluding to, you know, we need to be outside more during COVID. We need to walk more. I mean, there's absolutely no point in getting on a bus one end of a bridge and getting and then getting off the other. I mean, that, you know, it's absolutely crazy. Um, and we've got all this fresh air, you know, it's much fresher. Maybe people don't walk across bridges so much because they're worried about their hair. I don't know. But it's it's the... They're the ideal places to be, and and it gives you a moment of calm. I think I think that that's my favourite thing about the bridges is it gives you that moment where you look. I I get on a bridge and I take a big deep breath because suddenly there's space and suddenly there's the air and suddenly there's a view of the city that often you don't get when you're pounding the streets through you know the city of London or down at South Bank. You can get preoccupied by what's around you, but the bridges are that moment where you can. Uh, pause. It's uh, one of the things that um, I, I observed on the uh, Open City Architecture on the Thames boat tour led by Benny. Uh, when you go along on the boat, as you arrive at, say, Westminster Bridge, you see that all the tourists there and everybody, they're, they're just standing gazing at the city and, and you're on this boat looking up and you can see, you just see so much excitement and happiness in people's eyes that, you know, this is the raw moment of London that people have travelled from far to see. People didn't have access to the river much in the through most of the 19th and 20th centuries. You really only saw it if you crossed the bridge. And you would have to pay to cross many of those bridges until the tolls were abolished in the 1870s and 1880s. And so and you would just get little glimpses of the river downstairs. And so one of the things we have now is public space along the river, which which has been carefully kind of nurtured and built up, I suppose, since the time of the Festival of Britain, when one by one, all of the industrial sites along the river began to be closed. The illuminated rivers are part of this incredible renaissance of access to the river. So we've got all, all this history. We've got all this visual feeding of our minds as we're uh, walking alongside the bridges and over the bridges. And we've got we've talked a lot about how different people respond um, to the bridges and have different feelings and emotions. So there's clearly been a lot of visionary thinking that has interjected into the the bridges over the years. And illuminated river is is another chapter in that. So Sarah, would you like to talk a little bit about how such visionary thinking has has occurred during illuminated river and how it's helping to transform this next chapter? The bridges have not been very well recorded, you know, uh, and the information on them is terribly poor. So um, they've been overlooked in many different ways like that. So we thought when we first started that we would gather all the data that was around um, to help us do the project. But there wasn't any data. There wasn't any data on, you know, they weren't even properly surveyed in, in many respects. So we did the first three-dimensional surveys of all the bridges. So there's this incredible View London um, three-dimensional mapping device. But because the bridges are never involved in planning applications and developers aren't, you know, trying to knock them down, thank goodness, um, is that they've never been mapped. So they've never been part of that thinking about a joined-up London. You know, they're the bits that are always missing. No-one had mapped the birds and the bats and the bees and the uh, um, along central London. No-one had done a luminance study. The first thing we did, really, was think, crikey, we have got a huge amount of research and learning to do before we even start. Sarah, is there any is there an important role for kinetic artwork such as Illuminated River to play in curating our experience of the city and the way we see its landmarks, especially big ones like Tower of London, London Eye and County Hall? 
Well, I, I think there is, in terms of having a light artwork, um, whether it's kinetic or not, um, because ours does gently move, but we are not a light show. We, you know, we're not disco lights. Um, I think it's more about how you use uh, light art. And we don't want to create, uh, you know, a cacophony of, of, of light. There already is that, because one of the things we've learned is there's good light and there's bad light. Um, um, there's light spill and... And light that's you know that really doesn't add uh, in the way that it might. So so one of the things is that illuminated river. The way that we've used light reveals the architecture of the bridges. Whereas if you were to look at the front of County Hall, for example, with the money colours that goes across the front of the County Hall, it doesn't actually work with the architecture. They're just like big washes of light that just make the building disappear and dissolve. How do we as humans respond to colour temperature? What does that mean to us on a kind of human emotion? Well, we level? much prefer a slightly warmer hue as well. And the whiter the light and the bluer the light, it sort of makes you sort of screw up your eyes so you don't, you don't see it. It's not, it's, not a, it's not comfortable light. And then the other strange thing at light, night is, um, I, I've been sp- spending obviously quite a lot of time near um, Golden Jubilee and I look across at Terry Farrell's wonderful Wurlitzer which is so illuminated at night, you'd think it which was... Which one's that? It's above, that the Charing Cross? above Charing Cross Station, which is actually, you know, for post... I'm not a massive fan of postmodernism, but if you're going to pick a building, that's pretty damn good. But, um, but by God, it looks like it must be disco central. It looks like the place you should go to at night. <laughs> it's the offices of PricewaterhouseCooper. And while I'm oh, sure dear. they have a lot of fun, it, it's, it's this idea that we the nighttime is really um, not about telling you... Uh, anything about where to go in terms of light. You know, we're encouraging people down to the river at night because we're illuminating it. Why PricewaterhouseCooper is lit so uh, brightly at night, uh, well ab- above the limits that it should be, is to compete with the South Bank, because I've asked them. Um, and it's not, to de- it's not about architecture and it's not about come here because this is a cultural centre, which you get on the South Bank. So we are really missing a trick in terms of how the quality of the way that we light. Um, I do think there is a real, uh, needs to be much more thought and coordination about, about curating that night time so that we visually, you know, you, c- you, you can go for a lovely walk um, and enjoy all of that together. Illuminated River is a visionary project which has attempted to enhance its rich architectural heritage while also revolutionising the experience of the bridges and River Thames for the widest possible audience of Londoners and visitors to this great city. The process of creating the kinetic artwork has been extraordinary and very much worth retelling here. From inception and the design competition to winning planning permission, installing and testing right up to its final commissioning. So, Sarah, please could you talk us through a little bit of what uh, this Herculean task has, uh, what it has involved? How did it all begin and uh, what are your main takeaways from the process so far? Um, well, it really uh, goes back as far as the Olympics, the London Olympics. Remember those heady days of optimism and when we could pull off things so well? Um, and they were looking for a legacy project um, that had a cultural legacy project. And so Illuminated River was suggested actually by Jacob Rothschild and developed by Hannah Rothschild. And that's because Jacob Rothschild was um, at Somerset House. I mean, he was the chair of the Heritage Lottery Fund, um, thinking about transforming Somerset House from a car park and the inland revenue into the incredible um, cultural centre that it is today. 
looking out onto the river and thinking, well, you know, I like Waterloo Bridge. How come I can't see it in the evenings? Um, and wondering and starting off with just an ambition to actually illuminate Waterloo Bridge. And then it grew into something bigger, um, which was great, except for pan-London projects are quite hard to pull off because each borough wants to do its own thing, and I don't blame them for that at all. So it meant that unlike Tideway and HS2 that had an Act of Parliament, even though we were working with seven local authorities and five, five bridge owners and had to do 30 planning applications and 18 listed building consents, uh, we had to do it separately with all the different boroughs. So all of that was very challenging. Uh, and we don't own any of the bridges. So we also had to persuade five different bridge owners who never meet to discuss bridges. So one of the legacies from the project is that there is a group of bridge owners who will now meet to discuss, to collaborate on things. You know, So I was surprised to find that the person in charge of bridges on the north side of the river in one borough didn't speak to the person in charge of bridges on the other side of that same bridge in the, in the, on the borough on the other side of the river. So I understand a key part of the project was surveying the existing lighting environment of the Thames and thinking how best to mitigate both the human and ecological impact of your proposals. So could you tell us a little bit about that and how you have created this extraordinary environmental sensitivity whilst delivering these new um, projects? When people see light and they think, well, that's beautiful, sometimes they don't think about the negative impact. So light, direct light on the river is bad because um, the fish do not reproduce with the lights on. They are quite British in that regard. Um, and though the river is turbid, which I think is my favourite word, which means sort of murky, reflected light is fine because it doesn't penetrate. But if you put direct light on the river, you know, the, basically the fish have to wear sunglasses. So it's so needed because there's so much opportunity and vibrancy to bring to the city through lighting done in the right way. Um, so we really need that sort of um, coherent, joined-up lighting strategy across the city. There aren't any villains in this. As soon as you say to someone, you realise that your building or your bridge or whatever is throwing out X amount of light, they're appalled because that's not their intention. You know, they just want to make things beautiful. And frankly, we need a lot more of that at the moment. What you've achieved at this scale, you know, this scale of project spanning multiple ownerships, stakeholder bodies and planning authorities, it really is unprecedented. And I, I, I hope uh, that this has some unifying achievement and a practice, practical legacy so that it can be used to leverage other goals, such as periodic uh, pedestrianisation of the bridges or other feats. Have there been um, thoughts like that from you and the team, Sarah, as, as the project's developed? Yes, I mean, um, we've been working with car-free day. So, um, and talking about London Bridge and other bridges that could be car-free, we were looking at opportunities to do that while we were doing some lane clo closures as well during install. But I think COVID has made that harder in terms of, um, the capacity of people that you're allowed to, you know, have together. So, yeah, we've been thinking about that a lot. We've been thinking about accessibility. We've added new public seating as well, because one of the things we noticed on the South Bank, there were fewer and fewer places that people could sit for free, that it's become very commercialised. And so Southwark were really helpful, Southwark Council, in identifying sites for us and working with, again, the landowners, because it all wasn't on Southwark's land. Um, to put in some seating that was donated by marshals. Uh, 
At Illuminated Rivers Core is Leo Villarreal's vision for a unified kinetic artwork spanning the 14 central bridges from the City of London to Albert. There's no other artwork or light sculpture at this scale or level of impact in the city, so its potential to influence our thoughts and feelings is truly immense. And if you think about it, light is often, it's a very overlooked element of our sensory experience as humans, yet it's everywhere. And it's often at the centre of how most of us experience the built environment, both at day and at night. And if you think about it recently, for example, the lighting up of the bridge is blue in recognition of the NHS during the clap for carers at the start of the year, um, you know, during the lockdown, that was a particularly powerful moment. Um, and there's a sort of thought that maybe installations like this could be used in similarly powerful ways also in the future. Well, I think light is an emotional thing, isn't it? We're drawn to it like moths anyway. Um, and I just by, you know, we've worked with um, Don Slater at the LSE, who's run uh, research projects on conjoining light about how people behave in, in different environments um, to understand uh, what light can do. But basically, at the end of the day, the most important thing is just to kind of watch people's reaction, you know, to, to what light can do. And what I find interesting about our project is that people just stop and look and pause and Benny, um, do you have any thoughts on how the Illuminated Rivers maybe opened us up to new ways of experiencing light sculpture and and perhaps even being a way to be more welcoming to people in the city? Yeah, I think so. I believe that um, one of its great successes is, as Sarah points out, the fact that it's the bridges look great. Um, they're not too in your face, not too bold and garish. But then if you hang there and kind of watch the the design unfold, it, it metamorphoses. So it's it's just the right balance between look at me and just generally kind of improving the visual environment around the river. It's so wonderful the way that sensors and lighting technology has come on so rapidly and so impressively that the lighting, our cities can be tuned quite carefully for getting lighting right for public safety, right for the sense of enjoyment, but also hopefully not polluting the the night sky. You're working with one of London's top high-tech practices, Lifshitz, Davidson, Sanderlands. Their contribution to this project, they've obviously been helping with these myriad planning applications you've been making. How has their hand been shown as designers in rolling out the Illuminated River project? And so as we reflect on so much that has been covered in, in this podcast, on the history of the bridges, of the people that have been involved, um, and as we look to the future um, of the city and, and our ambitious goals to make London a more healthy, sustainable and um, equal city, Sarah, one of the things you said at the beginning was it, the project in itself was a catalyst for a collective conversation. Um, and by bringing together the multiple organisations, by gathering all the valuable information on each individual bridge and creating something more collective and accessible, and ultimately making decisions about the future of these pieces of the city in more holistic ways. It seems that there is a lot to be learned from that process. So can can your approach lead us into new ways to shape the city? Well, I would hope so. I mean, I, I think getting boroughs to talk 
more to each other because none of us see the city borough by borough, you know, when one border ends, we cross over from one borough to another. Um, and especially when the Thames borders so many boroughs that you need to have much more of a sort of vision, I think, um, that everyone buys into. It's kind of odd why that hasn't happened before. Um, and also I think it's about doing something that's joyful and fun and we've had an awful lot of support from people who are doing, you know, are doing working really hard in, in their day job because they would like to, you know, they want to help. Um, we haven't come across anybody who hasn't wanted to help, which is really nice. So I think it's about being able to get across a message of why we're doing a project and who benefits from it. Um, and I honestly think there's huge opportunities for us to work for, for, for London in its, in its different fiefdoms to work together a lot more on, um, for Londoners' benefits. Well, I think that's a, that's a really positive message for everyone who's listening, and um, and and thank you for working with us and joining us on this podcast today. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'm looking forward to getting out there and enjoying Illuminated River the next time I'm strolling on the South Bank. So, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Benny. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by Open City the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Selassie Setipa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher, and our producer, Ruby Maynard-Smith, and the Open City staff, Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave, and Sean Milliner. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.